Blog Talk Radio. Today, it's not particularly tough, but it is, I think, interesting, and it goes under the category of whatever happened to. At least that's my opinion. And we're talking about women's commissions. For those of you old enough to remember the 70s and the 80s, um, women's commissions were all, uh, I hate to use the term the rage, but I guess that would be appropriate. Every state, every community, every municipality, every country had women's commissions, and these commissions were uh, charged with investigating and making recommendations and doing all sorts of things. Well, when was the last time you heard about a woman's commission? It's been a long time for me, and I actually work in the biz. So um, I thought, let's talk about women's commissions. What were they for? What's the history of them? Why do we not have as many today? Uh, What's the deal? So we have a wonderful guest with us, Susan Rose. Welcome. Thank you, Heather, and thank you for inviting me today. As I've told you, this is an issue dear to my heart. Well, and I'm glad. So we've gone to the right place to find out about it. Susan, I'm going to let you tell us your biography, but briefly I want to point out that you have been very active uh, in women's issues for many years, including serving in public office, uh, serving on uh, some commissions yourselves, uh, yourself, I believe. Is that true? That's true, and yes, thank you for acknowledging that. Uh, I've been uh, a passionate activist for women and girls for many, most of my adult life, Started my professional career teaching, but very soon moved into the public sector world, the government world, I should say. I was an American history and American government teacher, and I decided I wanted to work in government. And I went to work in local government thinking that one day I would just become a city manager, but I kept being drawn into women's issues. And so along the way, I organized women's PACs. I advocated for women. I organized uh, campaigns to help women get elected, very early on realized that women needed to be at the table, and so I worked to support other women to get elected. One of my first candidates was Barbara Boxer, who ran for U.S. Senate in the state of California. Eventually, I ran for office myself. So so often when you are out there on the front lines, people say, why don't you run? Well, I, I did run eventually and became a county supervisor in Santa Barbara County and served there for eight years. But prior to that, one of the most wonderful jobs I had was that of the executive director of the L.A. City Commission on the Status of Women. And it was a moment in time in the mid-'80s and early-'90s when commissions were at their height, and I was able to bring my passion for women's issues and my experience in local government together. And I had a city council that was progressive and supportive of women's issues. And I was charged with doing everything I could to improve the lives of women in the city of Los Angeles. And it was a wonderful time for me and a wonderful time in the history of commissions. So I bring that experience as, as well as my government experience and elective office to all of this. But since I've retired, which is a couple of years ago, I've been writing on women's issues. And I'm fortunate to have, among others, Women's E-News as one of my outlets. So they're the ones who published this article that brought you and I together. And I, once again, a big plug for Women's E-News. If you don't uh, know it, if you're not familiar with it, right. it's a wonderful online publication, Women's E-News. Uh, founder and editor Rita Henley Jensen has been a guest on our show multiple times, and we just adore her. And not only is the news appropriate, not only is the news interesting, not only is the news really digging into the news. I, I, I think of it almost as an old-fashioned publication in that it really investigates, it really covers. Right. But also, as a former uh, you know, journalist and, and as a person with an undergrad degree in journalism, they know that the comma goes within the quotation marks. They know punctuation. They know words. They know... I love it because not only is it is it uh, uh, really outstanding from a news content standpoint, it's also outstanding from a presentation con- uh, and and publication content. So yeah, I can't I'd say like enough. To, I'd like to add that they uh, publish daily, 
and that they yes. are both they focus both domestically and internationally. And the good news is if you sign up with, and it's free, you get your feed every day. Because I must say I'm occasionally lazy, and if I have to find something online, I don't do it. It comes every morning, and I'm always looking forward to seeing what the subject matter will be. Oh, I know, and it, there's always stuff. Anyway, well, we could do a whole show on women's e-news, and we have, actually. <laughs> well, we've done our job promoting them now, but they're the ones who publish Yes, exactly, exactly. Reading, Whatever happens to the commission for women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it it is so comprehensive, and oftentimes, uh, not just with women's news, but I think in, on the Internet in general, um, we get exposed to a lot of information, but so much of it is uh, uh, from one source, from one uh, organization or from one uh, locale or just, you know, more of a uh, monocular kind of, of news presentation. You can go to as many as you want, but you, you, each of them is presented kind of um, uh, from that that one um, focus kind of thing. Women's E-News is not. I mean, it is all over the globe, and it is just really an outstanding publication. So, okay, great great on women's news um but um, yeah they do and and that is exactly how i ran across this and i it was interesting to me because i read the article the uh, name of the article was here's why we need a comeback in the u.s women's commissions um and i read that and my first thought was yeah whatever happened to women's commissions so susan whatever happened to women's commissions well, should we do a little history first? I mean, for people who don't Let's know do that. much about it. Let them. me throw out the phone number if you're, you are, okay. would like to join our conversation. The phone number is 646-378-0430, 646-378-0430. Or you can go on our chat line and uh, leave a comment and I will share it, uh, or question, and I will share it with Susan. Now, Susan, whatever happened to those commissions? How did they start? Well, What's the history? They started with the UN, interestingly enough. So it was an international birthing, and that was around 1946 or 1947. When the UN began in 46, so did a commission on the status of women, which was begun very shortly after and was adopted by the UN General Assembly. So the history goes back, and by the way, they still are a viable. A program and organization within the UN, and they have major international meetings every year. They're on their 60th, they just finished their 60th meeting in New York. So it was birthed by the UN and has evolved um, this great deal that has happened within the UN. And the actual mission statement, if you don't mind, I'm going to read it. The UN's commission is the following it's the principal global intergovernmental body exclusively dedicated to the promotion of gender equality and the empowerment of women. I mean, it's a little bit wordy, but I think it's it's a very important statement. Promotion of gender equality and the empowerment of women. So it began there, and it has been very successful in creating specific treaties to advance women in um, marriage, in pay equity, in the domestic violence area. They pass a lot of resolutions. Many become uh, treaties that are adopted by the UN General Assembly. And so... Uh, their work has grown and expanded, and they have a great deal of at- attention that's paid to them. And we could talk about um, how effective they are. Uh, I think the issue of leg- legally enforceable work that they do can be questioned because uh, what they do is adopted by the General Assembly, but then it has to be adopted by the countries who are part or members of the UN, and their delegates take that information back and those resolutions and treaties back to their countries. So it's a very and uh, that complicated take years. process. And that's a years-long process. Oh, my gosh, um, it goes on for years. I think the uh, CEDAW, which we should talk about in a minute, took maybe 10 years to draft and get adopted. And that's the, the grand uh, treaty of them all. It's the Commission to Eliminate Discrimination Against Women. And it's the mega treaty for uh, helping women. And let's, let's talk about that in a minute, but I want to talk about uh, U.S. history. But... CEDAW was adopted eventually in 1979. So if you go from 46 to 79, you can see that's quite a long way before the the major commission, excuse me, the major treaty was adopted by the UN General Assembly. But during the years of President Kennedy, uh, the American uh, domestic movement began. It's kind of a wonderful anecdote. Uh, John F. Kennedy was running for President of the United States, 
and he wanted Eleanor Roosevelt's endorsement. She, in the meanwhile, had gone ahead and endorsed Adelaide Stevenson, uh, and so she refused. But she wanted a commission on the status of women, and when he was elected, he created one. It was also uh, the idea of Esther Peterson, who was head of the Women's Bureau of the Department of Labor in the early 60s. So it's the early 60s, uh, John F. Kennedy is president, and they create a commission on the status of women, and Eleanor Roosevelt agrees to chair it. So it met for two years and published the most wonderful report covering all kinds of uh, issues that were of concern to women. And by the, one of the uh, recommendations was for states to support or to create their own commissions, which by uh, 1962 or three, they were then, uh, when the report was finished and, and published, by then 50, all 50 states had established commissions on the status of women. And women's issues were being debated both in Congress and throughout the country. And it was this moment in time where women's issues became a really important part of our political dialogue. So going from 46 at the UN to the early 1960s, John F. Kennedy really helped create the Commission for Women's Movement in this country. That's interesting, considering his proclivities. <laughs> that, <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah, I, and yeah. I know I leaped over 30 years, so you'll have to forgive yeah. me, but there is no, no, it a, always a mega history. Me. It always and, astounds me how, you know, the yeah. more history reveals about some of these political um, yeah. uh, personalities, and, and we look at what they accomplished, but then we start looking at at. at why it was, you know, the political maneuvers and all that kind of stuff. It's just an interesting, it's a fascinating but, but he, glimpse he into had human two behavior. Very, very well known and powerful women who lobbied for it, and that was Esther Peterson and Eleanor Roosevelt. And so they, they made a difference. And so he responded by creating the Presidential Commission on the Status of Women, which went for two years. And so that was really the, the birth, the birthing moment of commissions in this country. Wow. Um, so it went for two years, and then what? Well, the report was published, but then what you have is an amazing movement that takes off in this country. And there were commissions that are now, well, many commissions that still exist are 30 or 40 years old. And there was a period when I was working for the city of Los Angeles from 85 to 91 where there was a very, very powerful movement nationally as a result of the work that the President's Commission did and the movement for creating these commissions, an organization called NACW, National Association of Commissions for Women, was begun. And they were the more like the trade organization, the umbrella organization for commissions. They hosted an annual conference every year where hundreds and hundreds of women came in. And during those years, they were well into the 200, maybe 250 commissions that existed around the country. So we used to look forward to those meetings, my, myself and my staff and our commissioners, where we would meet commissioners from all over the country, share the work that we're doing, looking at projects, uh, finding out what was, what was going on and being accomplished in different in different places in the country. And I used to say if I wanted to do a project, I probably didn't have to build it from the ground up because another commission somewhere else was working on that same issue. So they, those were the high times, wonderful times, if you were working on commissions. But, you know, Heather, let me say one thing so I can actually clarify the importance of these commissions. Commissions for the, on the status of women were programs, in my case a department, within city hall or within a county structure. So they were actually an agency inside government that advocated for women's issues and women's needs. And that is completely unique. In most cases then and today, you have nonprofit political organizations being advocates outside government to have uh, you know, a role inside to be a department and, a, and have staff and have funding supported by, in this case, the Los Angeles City Council is a remarkable opportunity. And we spent many years, I was there six years, doing programming, doing publications, lobbying in Sacramento and Washington, using the resources of L.A. City government to make a difference in the lives of women. So it's a unique uh, program and very, very uh, impactful if it's used uh, in the best of ways. But each of these commissions for each of these uh, governmental entities was 
structured differently, was it not? That's correct, whether you were in the state government or the city. I'll give you an example. We have a commission that is back, you know, getting its funding in the the state of California. So at the state level, their primary role is to, to monitor and advocate legislation in Sacramento and to watch what happens when the bills are passed and then implemented. We, on the local level, created programming uh, and publications and held conferences and dealt, you know, on the local level, and we're really focused on grassroots activities. So it just depends on the structure, uh, the enabling legislation, the power you might have. L.A. was remarkable in those days, and it was defined as a department. That changed later on when, when the economy changed. Typically, it's not as structured as strongly as it is, but it can be. And that's, the, that's really depending on the political will of the council or the city government or the county government. It's all about political will. Okay. And you mentioned that the structures, of course, the structures were different for you know, each region or each uh, governmental entity that created them. Um, they had probably similar focuses, but not necessarily the same. Um, but well, let me, let me speak to that, that for, for just a minute. Sure. The issues that we worked on were defined by the commissioners. And so that would change in every community what was the most important issue. Uh, I can remember during my years in L.A., domestic violence was always a very important issue, and I think it's true in most commissions. Um, After I left, sex sex trafficking became a very important issue as that issue became more known. And so that does change. In In the previous years, in the most recent years, rather, I've seen a lot of focus on work and family benefits. And, and the workplace and issues like paid leave and child care uh, have become very, very important. Uh, okay. g- gender equity in the whole workplace is, has a great, greater focus than it did in my years in L.A. So that yeah. changes with local commissions, state commissions, and with time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, um, okay, so what happened after Kennedy as far as national commission? I mean, did other presidents pick that up? or was it No, just- no, that was, that was meant to be a two-year commission, uh, mm-hmm. and that was how it was legislated. But recommendations, meaning where to go, what kind of bills needed to be passed, continued to be brought forth by individual legislators, both on the national and the local level. So the report, the, the com, his presidential commission was only meant to be two years, but the report that was published was remarkable and basically set an agenda for years to come. Economic, you know, economic issues were focused on, um, marital issues, uh, pay issues, just a whole range of things. Might be very different today. Uh, we we're dealing with different issues, but some of those still. I mean, the issue of of gender equality in the workforce, meaning pay equity, family leave, paid leave, parental leave. We're still fighting for that in this country. I I must promote this. The state of California were the first ones to pass a paid family leave. We did it in 2004. Other states are now doing it. It's been an issue debated in the in Congress and still can't move forward. So we're so far behind other countries, and most countries, most uh, countries uh, throughout the world have paid leave, have paid childcare. We don't, and it's just the politics of what goes on in Washington. Can't yeah. move it forward. Well, maybe this would be the time to talk about CEDAW. Um Well, and okay. It's lack of movement in in Washington. So um, I think uh, the United States Congress has an allergy against uh, about passing uh, treaties. They don't like to pass treaties very often. I think they don't want to be told what they should be doing. Uh, the, the treaty called CEDAW, the International Treaty for Women's Rights, which has 30 articles, again, it's the Commission to Eliminate Discrimination Against Women, has been ratified by, by 187 countries out of 194. And we are one that has not ratified it. Presidents have endorsed it, but Congress will not ratify it. And I think part of it is a concern about uh, abortion issues or choice issues, but also that they don't like to um, uh, adopt treaties that are created by other countries. And so it's it's sad. It's very unfortunate where the rest of the world has gone online to support this and created what are legally enforceable treaties in their own countries. We have not done that. So 
along comes a, a recent movement called Cities for CEDAW. And what many of us have realized that is if our, our national government will not pass and endorse this treaty, then we probably have to do it on the local level. So um, looking back into the late 1990s, 1998, the San Francisco Commission on the Status of Women adopted CEDAW, and they were the first local agency to adopt this treaty anywhere. And what it is is it's a tool for gender analysis. It's a framework. And as a result of the work, you have recommendations that that come forth and new programs that have been created. So the city of San Francisco has led that way. And out of that, their work and work with agencies in New York and the UN, a movement called Cities for CEDAW has begun. And that's really what I wrote about in the article, if you recall, that the way to make movement happen, I think, to relaunch and rebirth the commission movement is to see that cities adopt, cities and counties adopt CEDAW on a local level. So the city of L.A. has just begun to do that. What happened a couple years ago, it was adopted by the city, but there was no implementation. And then a new mayor was elected, and Mayor Garcetti believes strongly in CEDAW, and he issued an executive director directive requiring every department, I think there are 40 or 50 in the city of L.A., to review uh, women's issues, gender issues, uh, using this framework, and produce a report and make recommendations. And so that happened uh, in December of, this, of last year. The reports were due in February, and they're now just starting to come forth and being presented to the city council. One of their commissioners did a presentation recently, and I, she told us that the fire department had requested a budget of, uh, I think, $300,000 to bring more women onto the fire department, and the city council of L.A. adopted that, or took, uh, you know, approved that request. So rather than, it's a very smart way it's being done in the city of L.A., rather than saying we need a couple of million dollars to implement CEDAW, uh, Mayor Garcetti has looked to each department to ask for recommendations, what, what, they, what kind of programs they need and what kind of funding they need. So I see CEDAW as the opportunity to make change on the local level for women and to, and to really uh, give commissions on the status of women a, a tool to make to effect change. Okay. What, you know, I mean, you can't talk about these kinds of things without talking about economic impact. Right. Um, I mean, everybody wants to do good, but there's always a price tag attached. So um, what is, how do, how does the uh, money fit into CEDAW? Well, let me, and that's a good point you raised. Let me go back a little bit to 2008, and, you, and we've talked about how the commissions aren't visible right now. What began to happen, the very robust commission movement started to really disappear. And everywhere across the country, commissions' budgets were being cut. And it's sad in this, in this, in sad because their budgets are so small. Uh, a city of LA, my department had five staff members, and the and the state same thing with the state. Their actual budget was a a, a gnat on a, on a pin compared to the larger budgets. But it became a, a target. It became symbol. Let's get rid of the commission on the status of women, and it'll look like we're doing something. It happened on the state level, and so the, then and still, Governor Jerry Brown defunded the state commission for several years. And the state legislature didn't want to let go of it, so they kind of took it under their wing and they funded it through their own budget. And two years ago, Jerry Brown decided to to bring back the commission. And so now uh, this year will be the second year he's refunded it and provided staff for it. In the city of L.A., what they did was they took the, the department status away from the commission and moved it under another agency and took away all its staff. So the commissioners exist, but the program exists more like in name only because they don't have staff and they don't have resources. So the work that's being done, for example, in the L.A. City Commission is done basically by volunteers. So you asked about budgeting. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the city of L.A. does when all its departments produce reports and have recommendations for funding and to see if the city council continues to support their requests. Uh, the, the best thing we can do is re revitalize these commissions to have them once again play the strong role that they did before. 
So that would require city councils and county boards to actually fund them in the way that they have an impact and the way that they have staff. It's hard to get anything done unless you have staff. So yeah. that's where we are right well, now. Okay, ahead, but you're I'm talking sorry. California. Um, right. What you know? What what's happening in Ashtabula, Ohio? Well, um, I can't tell you but, what's happening. I I can you know, tell you one one factor. <laughs> no, no, I I do know this through the national organization, which is the association that I mentioned earlier. They still claim that there are over 200 commissions, but in order to be a member of the the association where we all used to be members, you have to pay a dues. And only 50 commissions around the country are now paying dues. So whether those commissions are functioning at all, we don't know. They may exist, as I said, in name only. Uh, those commissions still try to meet periodically once a year, but the, the turnout is much smaller. So we know across the country that their funding has disappeared in many cases. Nobody has been able to do a total analysis of who has money and who doesn't, but we can see that through NACW that there are very few commissioners that are acti- commissions that are active at all. So it's a, I mean, it's a struggling movement in this country, and that's why I've focused on CEDAW as a way to help bring back that movement. It's a tool that, again, if a council is interested in pursuing, they can. It's already been structured. It's proved to be successful. San Francisco implemented it in 1998, and they have, as a result, produced many programs in the domestic violence area and the workplace area as a result of CEDAW research analysis and program development. And so they have a very strong program, and they are very well funded to the tune of a couple of million dollars each year. What about, um, I wish there was some, you know, you answered the question very well. Um, I I certainly didn't expect you to have, you know, the information about Ashtabula, Ohio. I guess what I was getting at really is um, what are are we talking about as far as attitudes towards women's commissions? Do you have a sense of that in this country? Well, I think... As you talked about generations before, and I think probably this, these generations today, uh, the younger women don't even know about them and aren't aware of them, and that is a problem. Though the LA Commission has many young women who are members, and so again, that would depend on the local jurisdiction. For example, I don't know what's in the state of Washington if you have a state or local commissions on the status of women, but the political appointments can be not only an older generation but a younger generation. And I've seen that. We have a local commission in Santa Barbara where I live. I see that in the city of L.A. where there are younger commissioners coming in involved. And once they understand that it's a way to make a difference and to pass new programming and to make change, I think this is a movement that could come back. Um, certainly the U.N. movement has, has grown, and it's very, very strong. Thousands of women come to New York every year for representing their countries to spend two weeks in New York City attending the conference that the U.N. Women Program puts on, participating in dialogue, uh, listening to presentations. It's become a bigger program, and it's, it's very strong and very popular. So internationally, we have something that could be very powerful. And since it's not happening nationally in this country, uh, we have to build it from the grassroots. We have to build it from the ground up. And that's what San Francisco did, and that's what I hope other commissioners – and that's why I wrote the, art, the piece and, and focused it the way I did, Heather, so I could maybe send that message out to local jurisdictions that this is a way to rebuild, to relaunch the commissions. And we have a tool called CEDAW. But once again, we have to get the word out, and we have to get younger women engaged because obviously they don't know or aren't aware of this his, the long history of this movement and how effective it was in the early days. Well, and we talk. Let's talk a little bit about the early days because one of the things that we talked about doing preparation for the show is um, I, we're probably in the same demographic age-wise. Um, I what I have seen with my daughter's friends, for example, there's not a real strong urge to identify as a feminist. There's not a real strong feeling that women have specific problems that need to be addressed. Um, there's kind of a feeling that I have sensed, and I'm just speaking personally, that I have seen uh, among younger women, teenage and, and around there, that, um, oh, yeah, the women's movement was something that happened in the 70s and they took care of all the problems. Have you well, seen you know, that? It's, it's interesting. I've, I've heard that, you know, 
those thoughts expressed many times over the years, and and younger women, and I have daughters too, and and granddaughters, who say, "Well, I don't want to use the, the the title or the name or the label feminist or feminism," but you know, I think that's changing. And if you pay attention right now to some of the celebrities who have adopted this word and are using it and and powerfully so, look at Beyonce. Look at some of the young actresses today. So I have a feeling suddenly that this movement is coming back, and that I wish it didn't have to require celebrity status. Um, there's a newsletter. We talked about women's e-news, and this is how things go, I think, in life. Uh, I read some traditional newsletters, and recently my 40-something daughter sent me a newsletter called Lenny. I don't know if you're aware of it, but Lenny is was founded by Lena Durham, the actress, and it is a, a feminist blog, and it's a powerful one. And so what I'm beginning to see in here is that younger women are saying, you know, I am a feminist. Uh, I like that name. And they're doing it in a very powerful way, granted celebrity status. But I think it's beginning to hit home. I think women know today that there are still problems, and a lot of it has to do with pay and pay equity and the the workplace issues that were less focused on when I was a, a director and are very, very of great concern right now. So whether it's pay equity, child care, or, or parental leave, the three big ones, I'm seeing and hearing that over and over again and coming forth from young women who are in the workplace right now. And those women who say, oh, everything's fine and there are no problems, then they go into the workplace and they have their first yeah. <laughs> experience with discrimination. It happened to my older daughter. She hit the glass ceiling really early. She was in the in her 20s, and she had started her first job and was moving up in the entertainment industry. Uh, she worked for a television network, and a, a position opened above her that she applied for, and they brought in a young man uh, younger than she and who had none of her experience and gave him the position. And I think it feminized her, if that's a good word, uh, yeah. pretty early like on. So get into the workplace, and, and they experience it. They do. So we're still fighting some of the same battles. And then some of them are new, or they're being reframed, or they have uh, new issues that we not not necessarily focused on in our days. So I think we had a, perhaps a, a, a dearth of that in, interest for many years, certainly didn't get the publicity that it, it has now. And and look at the current election that's going on and the sexism that continues to exist in for, for any woman who runs for office. Uh, and I think Hillary Clinton, no matter how powerful and successful she has been, still experiences it. I mean, they they accuse her of a lack of charisma. They they She's challenged about her, her laugh and her... Her laugh. Her, laugh, I, her, her pants. I grew up in, in an, in an era when I remember as a child there were, you know, uh, uh, Barbara Walters was the only woman who was on national news. And all the conversation was, well, you can't have a woman on news because their voices are too abrasive. Yeah. You know, that whole notion that their voices were too abrasive. And the same thing with, a, you know, if a woman laughs with a belly laugh that we should be delighted to hear, no, no, there's something unfeminine about that. And son of a gun, I was listening last week to something, I don't know what, just just popular radio station in the car, and they did a whole segment on Hillary's laugh and how awful and abrasive and horrible this laugh is. And I just thought, oh, my God, what year are we? <laughs> You know, so I think that when I step back, because I've been involved in the feminist movement for a lot of years, I see a lot of progress, progress in many, many ways. But it's also slow. And, for example, the number of women in Congress, the number of women in, polit in political office, uh, we can't crack 19% in Congress, and maybe we're in 23% in most state legislators, legislatures. And it's so important because all the research we have now, uh, are you familiar with the Center for American Women, excuse me, CWAR? Not CWAR, I think yes. that back. It's CAW, yeah, but let's let's Center talk, for American yeah. Women in Politics at Rutgers. They've been studying this issue for 40 years. And what we know now is that women in public office are the ones more likely to carry the legislation that affects the lives of women and children. So we're in, we're in a, you know, increasing slowly. Our numbers are slowly, but it's taking so long. And so there are problems that still exist. Hillary personifies that. Uh, but we are making a difference, but it's very, very slow. And sometimes it's not only the same problem, but sometimes it's new issues. 
I mean, I, like I mentioned, sex trafficking, which now has become such a, a, a very important issue. Uh, so uh, I go back to the commissions on the status of women as a as an opportunity to make a difference within the halls of government and without, not just within, but once they have the resources, the power, the ability to be a player in City Hall, they can make a difference from within, and that's so important. And it's a way that we can move women's issues along much more, much more quickly. But things are so. Slow. Do you see women's you. commissions? It, it sounds to me like you see women's commissions as definitely being apropos. It's not uh, something from uh, you know the the heyday of the women's movement. It you're, it's something that really is appropriate and would be beneficial today. I think so. That's why that's why I wrote the piece, and that's why I continue to be an advocate for them. They have the ability, you know, even in cases like, uh, for example, I live in a small community, and we have a commission that's never had resources. They have a tiny, tiny budget. But the women who sit on the commission are very engaged and very committed to the work of the commission. So recently they gathered together and they did a gender equity study of boards and commissions in the county, and they wanted to see how many women were serving on commissions because they felt it meant a diff- it would make a difference, which of course it will. And they did that using volunteer time, resources. They did raise some money to do the actual research, and the report was very successful. And now it's made all the electeds conscious of who and what kind of appointments they made. They basically shined a light, focused their gender lens on this issue, and made a difference. And so. Uh, even without resources, they've done something. Just think what they could do if they had a real budget. Uh, and that's uh, San Francisco is an example. L.A. City, I hope, will get to the point where they have paid staff. They don't have that now. The uh, state of, of California has uh, staff now that they didn't have the last couple years. So, you know, we can do the work if we have the budget and if we have the staff. So, yes, I think it's very important to bring them back, to grow, to make – because those issues are still still there. They Some of them are still there. Some of them are have, you know, evolved more. And then there are new issues we continue to battle for. So the work, as you and I know, is nowhere near done yet. And I, and I argue the commissions on the status of women need to come back and will make a difference. Okay. Um, so uh, let's talk – well, all right. Then what can we do about that? What can we as women, what can well, let we me as ask, citizens Let me ask do? you, what does the state about of Washington that? have? <laughs> I don't know. You know what? I think we do. I was actually trying to Google here, um, and I got, you know, whenever you type in Washington, um, yeah. you you get D.C., not Washington State, you know. Um, but um, I believe that we do, and I know that one of our senators, uh, I was speaking with her a year or so ago, and she is trying to uh, do more and start a commission or start a, an organization or something in the state, specifically applying CEDAW guidelines to legislation that goes through. But as far as an official uh, women's commission, I'm not sure. I'm going to Google that right now. Well, so in a, in her case and in other cases, you're going to have an ind- individual legislator who wants to carry the agenda. But just think if you had a commission that was focused, just like any department, whether it's building bridges or providing health care, why not have a a commission or a department that focuses on the needs of women? We we do in a lot of uh, jurisdictions have commissions that focus on the needs of children. Well, we still have a great deal of work that needs to be done and a lot of problems that need to be resolved. So my argument is that a, a department or a commission an agency of some kind that focuses on these issues it will make a difference and will be helpful and supportive to that one legislator who wants to be the one who carries one piece yeah. of legislation. Uh, in the case of you know, Mayor, go ahead. I just discovered he did it from top down. Yeah, I just discovered in my little Google search here. There's the city of Seattle has a women's commission that's right out there, um, okay. and uh, there's a commission on the status of women at the Women's Resource Center at WSU, and the, the and uh, uh, Washington State University has a women's commission. You know, so that's I'm a thinking very, that's a very good point. A lot of universities, universities have them. Yeah, no, a lot yeah. of universities have created them over the years, have funded them as a way, again, within the institution itself to have a, a, 
have an opportunity or a place for women to go to be advocates to deal with issues affecting women on campus. I mean, we know just the horrible issues that we now understand about rape and violence that goes on campuses. Uh, if you saw the movie The Huntington Ground, it's an issue. Hunting Ground, it's an issue that has become very known and very prevalent now. Having a commission on the status of women on campus as a place where women could go to be listened to and to go for help would really make a difference because once again, it would be their a voice for them within the institution, within the system. So hopefully, the powers that be, the, the leadership of that university, would listen and would try to effect change. But sometimes you can't go from being the student to the president of the university and be heard. But having uh, a, com a commission that would be your voice would definitely make a difference. So, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because my experience is that many universities have commissions on their campuses. Well, and, and again, it seems to me in my search that I, I'm, and maybe I'm not searching correctly, but I'm not finding a specific women's commission uh, for the state of Washington. I am, however, finding a number of women's commissions at universities, at schools, and cities. Um, and so, you know, maybe... Um, so maybe a, a way to do this, perhaps, is to find somebody who would provide that leadership uh, in the state legislature. And because the funding in the end is not that significant in an overall state budget. So who would be the appropriate person to provide that leadership to, to demonstrate the political will who would see that they could make a difference by having such an agency? And there's certainly some around the country that would be good models. As I recall, I mean, I don't have my finger on many commissions, but uh, many states, but I recall the state of Connecticut has a very successful commission. In fact, I think they're called the Permanent Commission on the Status of Women. Uh, which means nobody's going to defund them, or they, they can't. They that's won't it. try anyway. <laughs> They've been there for years. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's always um, good. <laughs> yeah, but the good news is that where they where they exist and where there's funding, the issues that are taken up are taken up and decided by the commissioners, the appointments, the appointees themselves. So it's a very much a local uh, decision that's made, and it gives the women a chance to uh, assess what the needs are of their region. I remember in the early years of our state commission in California, they would periodically hold public hearings, and they would go around the state and, and listen to the women. We did that in the city of Los Angeles. We would work with individual council members, and here's a political strategy. But it was very successful, and we had 15 districts. And over the course of a couple of years, we would collaborate with a council member, and he or she would host the commission in that particular council district, and the women would turn out. And they would listen. We would listen to them and gave them an opportunity. If they couldn't go to downtown L.A., they could come after work or a, a time during the day and talk to our commissioners and say, these are, these are our issues. We don't have enough child care. Uh, this is a problem and was a big problem in the city of L.A. in my day. And so we would hear that frequently. And domestic violence continued to be an issue on over and over during those years. So we knew from uh, our, literally from our council uh, districts what the what the issues were that were of concern to our women. So I think the state of Washington needs to do something. Here's an opportunity. Well, maybe they all. have, and I'm just not finding it. I mean, yeah. you know, in all fairness, because I know um, uh, Senator Margaret Chase is definitely. Um, um, involved in things. So maybe I am just not finding it. And, well, my, um, my suggestion to you, whether you're looking at uh, there or for any of the university or local ones, is not only look to see if they're there, but look to see if they have appointees and look to see if they have a budget. And sometimes a commission will be um, not necessarily the political interest of a conservative, very conservative uh, legislator or elective, and so he or she will then choose not to make an appointment. And this is one of the ways in which, which commissions have um, been losing ground and have, are basically dying around the country. You either don't fund them or you don't make the appointments. And that's something I learned from the president of National Association of Commissions for Women. They know that their commissions in name only, but they're not active because they don't have appointees. So well, and I find it very interesting ways that to kill as a commission. Was, yeah. At, well, and not only that, but as I was going through this, you know, I mean, and and from your conversation earlier uh, about the commission uh, in, in your area, Seattle Women's Commission, a wonderful yeah. dedicated group of volunteers. 
Right. You know what? Let's put some money here. We've got money behind everything else. You know, surely you can afford a couple grand a, year, a month for the Women's Commission. Um, it, it, it's one of my pet peeves where, and even we as women tend to expect women to work for free. Um, and, and that's exactly. just one of my glowing, glowing pet peeves is how we tend to think that women should just be doing this work because of the love of the work. You know, and forget the fact that we have mortgages and groceries to buy. Let's just... You know, I mean, it's just let me <laughs> Let me bring this back to uh, one of my passions that I mentioned earlier is making sure that there is gender equity on elected boards. So if you uh, support a woman who you think it will, is of con- has concern about women's issues, perhaps one of the things you might do in Washington is see if she'd be willing to carry that, you know, forth, you know, uh, and make that part of what she's fighting for. But see if she's interested uh, in such. And by the way, I need to qualify and say there are wonderful men out there who will support women's issues. Of course. But but of course. of course, I need to because I'm always told, well, is that all you believe in? That yeah. only women can support these? Well, of course, men, good men are supporting our issues too. But it's more likely that a woman would carry this issue and would fight for it. And so, as you are organizing in the state of Washington, and I don't know what kind of political organizations you have for women there, but see if that couldn't be part of the agenda, and then look for a woman candidate who would be the flag bearer for that, who would carry that, and work to make it happen in the state legislature. Yeah. Yeah, I think I see over and over again that, you know, oftentimes anything having to do with women's issues, we expect women to volunteer for it. And we would never expect, um, well, that's a sweeping generalization. We we tend to not expect um, that from other people, but we do tend to expect it from women that if they care about it, they'll just do it for free. And isn't that the good, wonderful? The, and they're, the good news and is they're lovely the volunteers, pay- and we'll give them yeah. a recognition once a year and a certificate. Yeah. You know, I mean. At a breakfast, yeah. The good yeah, news yeah, 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 the volunteer the, breakfast, yeah. The pay equity <laughs> issue is alive and well um, in this country, and we've just passed a very strong bill in California. Uh, the increase for to $15 an hour uh, is, I think, just happened in California and New York. So the issue of pay is on a lot of, because the economy is so, has been hurting so many people. There's such an, an inequity that exists across this country these days, particularly for the middle-income families. And so uh, we need to recognize fair pay for women and increase the hourly rate. And so it's become part, very much a part of co- the current political dialogue. And I think it's an opportunity for women to jump on a bandwagon and, and really push this issue for us. Well, I'm looking at um, at our clock, and of course we have a few minutes left, and what I'd like to do is to talk more about the future of women's commissions. How do you, first of all, do you see a need for people to become more educated about women's commissions? Clearly, I need to be more educated about women's commissions in my state. Um, do you see a need for that education? Do you see a need for changing a focus? Do you what? Do, what do you see as the need? for women's commissions in the future? Well, obviously, I very much believe in in, in commissions to begin with. Um, that's why I wrote the article, and I've watched historically what has happened since I was involved in the 80s and 90s. And so I think the need is still there. The issues that are of concern to us, we're s- still fighting. As I said before, some of them are different issues. And I believe that this is the kind of unique agency. There's nothing like it for women anywhere. And that's something we have to remember, that it's, this is an opportunity for us to make sure that we are still a voice inside City Hall. So, yes, but you're right. You're absolutely right about the education piece of it. Somehow we have to find and create a strategy that brings this issue back to public attention. And perhaps we haven't done that well enough. We need leaders who will do that. I'm certainly one who goes and testifies whenever I can and and advocates for it. So uh, we have to bring that back to public attention. And so the women of the state of Washington need to make sure that uh, they – the women, you know, are really represented in this way. I don't know what the, uh, I don't know who to look to in the state of Washington who might provide that leadership, uh, but what's going on? Are your local commissions being funded? Question one, is there a state commission? Okay. Question two, I think we all know that the need is still there. I'm arguing that the commissions are a way in which we can make a difference, and CEDAW is the tool that can be used on the local level. 
So I will say the good news is in California that we are coming back. Where I saw the L.A. City Commission be def- almost defunded. I saw L.A. Excuse me, California's commission definitely be defunded. That's de- that's come back with more resources. So there are enough women who are advocating, enough women legislators who care that that the fight is still continuing. So I'm sure it varies in every state, and I wish I could speak to the 48 other states or 49 other states, but I can't. I can only tell you what I see from afar and what I believe in, not only based on my own experience, but also, by the way, what's going on at the U.N. So the response internationally is tremendous. Uh, what the frustration there is that a lot of the work that's done is not legally enforceable unless it's adopted by the country. Uh, but many countries are pursuing the recommendations uh, of the UN Women's Program, and then they have to be monitored, which they are being monitored by the people who monitor CEDAW, and that's being done by uh, the uh, Human Relations Council, I believe, of the UN. So there's an elaborate process that goes on where the cities, and excuse me, the counties and, and the countries, really, the countries make periodic reports to the UN, and then they are then published. So there's a device that's been set up and a process by which the countries have to respond, they have to report on the work that they're doing, and it goes back to the UN. So on the broadest level, on the international level, the the work is still being done and commissions are out there working internationally. So I think it's once again time for us to get on board, meaning the United States, and to do more of that work at home. So it's okay. it's not so it's you not and unusual. you are personally advocating for a new uh, uh, presidential commission, right? You you're right, absolutely. Thank you. You read all the way through my article. Um, I'm going to see if we can't make that happen. I'd like to see another presidential commission, another two year uh, opportunity. Doesn't have to be permanent. When you say permanent, it gets everybody a little anxious. But I think repeating and replicating what. Uh, President Kennedy did years ago, would focus attention, and this goes back to what you were saying, perhaps provide more education, would be more like an update, which they've done periodically, but focus attention nationally on what work has been done since the 60s and what we still need to do. So I, I do have some people whose voices I think matter in Congress, and I don't know who your legislators are, but I'm going to be one out there knocking on doors and advocating for a second presidential commission on the status of women. And perhaps if we elect our first woman president, that will happen. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Maybe. Um, you know, I mean, maybe, I know. Yeah, well, I hear that from you know, me. there's so many factors in play. Gender is not necessarily just the only factor that they have to deal with. But um, and and plus, I have to say, sometimes I'm absolutely astounded because I view feminism as part of my my life, and it always just knocks my socks off when I hear of some um, decision by a female judge or you know, a action by a female politician or something that it seems seems to me to be so contrary to uh, the support of, of, of females. What our feminist uh, it beliefs just, are, yeah. It just knocks my socks off. But <laughs> I have to remember that not everybody thinks like I think, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, I'm going to do another article for Women's E-News. I'm going to wait a couple of months till the, the city of L.A., uh, all their 50 departments, produce their recommended reports that the mayor has asked for. In other words, the CEDAW uh, process that they've gone through using a gender lens uh, to focus on their departments to see what needs to be done. I'll be very interested to see what the departments say, what they've found, what they produce, what recommendations they put forth, and what budget requirements. So I'm going to follow the process of CEDAW in the city of L.A. and see where it winds up, and that's another article I hope to produce in the next couple of months. And that will be hopefully an argument for other commissions to follow what they're doing. Well, let me know if you want any help with that. Love this issue. <laughs> no, um, I want to know what's the, going on in the state of Washington. I think we've opened the door here. Yeah, I know. Well, you, you, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed that I, I don't know. I mean, I, I try to do my prep for the show, but I got to tell you, for some reason, I just, you know, and you know what? that one escapes you've, me. You've made me realize I, I was, that I was focusing on CEDAW and you know, yeah. no, but, <laughs> instead but, of my own home state here. So you know, that's, you, that's bad on me. You've made me realize that. I need to come up with a strategy for education, okay, to educate women throughout the country that, that how important these commissions are, and I need to think that one through. 
So thank you for well, I don't know making if you were a single mother, that. but I know that as yes, as all I those was. years when I was a single mother and working two jobs and trying to get kids here and there and make sure they get the experiences that that an enrichment that they they would have had if they'd had two parents and you know doing all of that kind of stuff, my feminism was lurking in the back of my mind, but it was not something that I had the time or resources to actively work on. Well, let me tell you a personal anecdote. So um, I was a single parent for five years, and uh, really my children were uh, in that late elementary school, and I really needed after-school care, and it was a struggle. And I I made it happen, but it was a challenge. Child care just was not that available for me. And, And it was not part of the public policy discussion in those days that it has since become, and that's really wonderful. That's one of the changes I've seen. So fast forward many years to the late 80s, and I'm working as the director of the L.A. City Commission on the Status of Women. And two of the women council members call me into their office one day and say, we need a child care policy for the city of Los Angeles. And, Susan, we're charging you to make that happen, you and the Commission on the Status of Women. So during the following months, I got to work with my commissioners and many people in the community where we crafted one of the, if perhaps the first child care policy in, in the country. And I can only tell you how exciting it was for me the day we were in city council and the entire city council voted to support this very comprehensive policy. And one of the council members came with his young daughter who was about two years old and put her on his desk during the vote. And I asked him later why. He said he wanted to be able to tell her when she was an adult that she had been there at a very important time when he had voted for a child care policy. So you can oh, imagine, nice. I, stood, I stood in the back of the chambers and I wept because it was yeah. the kind of thing that my own history got me to understand the importance of my own experience, but I had actually been able to make a difference. So yeah. there are those well, and, opportunities for all of us. And that kind of brings us. us full circle to what we were saying before. Right. You know, we have to give kudos to the many, many men who are actively feminist, right. who, are, who are actively out there working for it, whether they identify as feminist or not, who see the fairness and the the interest and the benefit to all of us to having these and they are there they are there you betcha you betcha i have i Um, I am remarried and i have a husband who is a cheerleader for me and all the work that i've been doing ever since so there are many many men that we can partner with you betcha and and i always say my father was the first feminist i ever knew My father was uh, one of, uh, he, he was, oh, oh gosh, he, he was born in 1914. He's been dead for many years now. But um, he was the only boy with eight sisters, and oh he was next <laughs> to the youngest. And I'll tell you, he worked manly, manly jobs. He poured iron in a factory, and he worked in gas stations, and he could fix farm equipment, and he could do all of this manly stuff, right? But he was a feminist. And... He was. It was such a shock for me because there was myself, my sister, and my mother. Even the cat and the dog were female, and my father was so comfortable with that. And even you know when I was an adult and when I went off to college and everything, it was a shock for me to encounter men who didn't share my father's feminist views. It was a real shock because I assumed that all of them would be like my father. You know, I, and, I think there's a personal history for all of us that makes a difference. I was one of two daughters and I went to a woman's college and I think that really trained me for my self gave me self-worth and value because I always believed that I was important that I could make a difference and nothing was going to stop me and I could do anything I wanted to do and that's what's driven me ever since yeah I think and I hope I've imparted that to my daughters too bingo Bingo. I am absolutely pleased with, with my daughter and her views on, on feminism and, and life as a woman. And she just got married a couple weeks ago. And if if and when children come, I'm looking forward to another generation of feminist Stark women. Um, and even my son, uh, who will joke with me and... Uh, uh, Talking, we make jokes about being raised by a feminist, you know. (laughs) Well, I always say the the F word when they talk about the F word. For me, it's feminism. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Susan, it's been delightful. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation, and know, of course, that this week I'm going to be dedicated to uh, finding out about the um, uh, State of Washington Women's Commission. I am. I am 
90% confident there is one out there that I'm right. just not finding. Because All right, and, we, and let's pretty pretty progressive when it comes to these issues. Well, let's so, talk about that. Uh, you you have that assignment, and I have the assignment of uh, finding out what the city of L.A. has accomplished and what else is going on around the country. But I'm, I want to talk once again to the results of a CEDAW process. There you go. You know, I All usually right. end the quote, uh, the show with a quote. We're coming up against a hard, hard time out here. I don't have time for my quote, but I will mention that uh, April 29th is Denim Day. That's a day uh, that was started in 1999, honoring or recognizing uh-huh. an Italian Supreme Court decision that uh, uh, overturned a uh, rape conviction because they blamed the woman for wearing too tight blue jeans. So Denim Day, April 29th, wear blue jeans in solidarity. Thank you for and, listening and Heather, to Three Women. And Heather, thank you, your kinds of shows ways. are making a difference for us, so I really appreciate the work that you do. Very good. Thank you very much, Susan. Thank you. Bye-bye.